Well, good morning. Welcome to Redemption Church. Good to worship with you today. Uh, today we have um, a special service. We're going to do a child dedication today, and uh, I want to prepare us for that a little bit. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me in 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, or you could just listen as I read. These verses won't be on the screen, uh, but I want to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 21 through 27, which says, when Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow of offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband, Elkanah, replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord, I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. We see here an example of a mother who understands that children come from the Lord and that children ultimately belong to the Lord. And so child dedication is an opportunity to express a similar sentiment. Child dedication is a way of saying that we as parents acknowledge that any children we might be blessed with come ultimately from the Lord and that our responsibility is, in a sense, to turn them over to the Lord, to raise them in a way that they know him and experience their Savior. We find Jesus placed a high value on children in Matthew 19 and on the inclusion of children in the community of faith. In Matthew 19, it says in verse 13, then children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Here we see another example of what it means to present children before the Lord. And so that's what child dedication represents for us. There's nothing, there's nothing that happens in terms of salvation during child dedication. It's a commitment, really, from the family and for us as a church to raise these children as best we can to know, to follow, and to love the Lord. And so I want to ask Mark and Jacqueline and their family to join me on stage Marty, do you happen to know where the handheld mic is? I forgot to grab that. <laughs> it's okay if we don't have... Oh, thanks, brother. Appreciate that. Guys, come on up here. One of you be willing to introduce your family to us? I'm Jackie, this is Adeline, this is my husband Mark, and this is our youngest, Raylan. Okay, thanks. And Raylan is the one that's being dedicated here today. Would you all just listen as I read uh, these words that, that have been written for this day. This child was created by God for his glory, to know and be known by our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
this child has the potential and the opportunity to do great things for the kingdom of God. This child was born for such a time as this. This child has gifts waiting to be developed and put into kingdom use. This child needs to see genuine Christianity lived out in the church and in the world. This child needs teachers who will teach her, love her, and model for her the wonderful truths of our faith. This child needs a church that will allow her to stumble and catch her when she falls. This child is a gift from God to her family and to us, the people of Redemption Church. So this child is welcomed into this family of faith today, and we pledge to do our very best to seek God's grace, to come alongside of this family and to help nurture her so that she too may know Jesus as Lord and Savior and live a life of faithfulness to the mission given to us by Jesus to reach the world with the gospel. Mark and Jacqueline, do you on this day pledge to model for Raylan what it means to live for Jesus, to teach her the truths taught to us in Scripture? If you do, please say, we do. Thank you. And so do we, the people of Redemption Church, pledge to come alongside of you and to invest in this young lady and to provide for her a genuine community of faith. Church family, would you stretch out your hands toward this family in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for gifting this family with Raylan. We pray, God, that she would continue to know your love and your grace and your kindness through them and through us. God, raise her up to do your will, to know you, to be loved by you, and to love you in return. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, guys. Please be seated. All right, let's go ahead and get into uh, our message for today. If you have the handout that we gave you on the way in, you'll see there uh, that we're talking about the Bible today. That shouldn't be surprising. As a, uh, when you come to church, you should expect to hear about the Bible, but we're specifically talking about what it means to be Bible-centered. We are in a series going through our four core values as a church, and the first of our core values is that we desire to be a Bible-centered church. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find too many churches, though there are some, who would openly say they don't want to be Bible-centered, that they don't regard the Bible highly, but we intend to place particular emphasis on centering all that we do and how we see ourselves around God's revealed word in scripture, the Bible. And so our core value is stated this way, and we shared this last week. This is part two of core value number one. Our core value is this, as you'll see on the handout. Bible-centered, we believe that God's word preached, taught, shared among each other, and studied individually, etc., is the means by which God grows his people. We believe that God's word is the means by which he grows his people. And so our emphasis on scripture is not an emphasis based on a desire to elevate one particular book above the rest, but it's based on an understanding that this book is self-elevating, that it, it, it itself lifts itself above every other book that has ever been written because this is the word of God and the means by which 
He grows his people. And so that's what we want to talk briefly about today. Would you join me in prayer as we, as we study the scriptures together? Father, we come before your word, this divinely inspired, holy, true, preserved throughout the ages, living and active word of God that we have in front of us today. God, give us open hearts. Give us ears that, that hear, minds that understand, hearts that are eager to obey. Would you grow us as you always do through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question I want to answer today is, what is the Bible? And you can probably predict my answer, but it's worth being explicit on this issue. What is the Bible? Well, first of all, the Bible is not just one book. If you've begun uh, through the 365 reading plan with us, you're, you're beginning to notice that there's more than one book here. There's more than one author. It's actually a collection of 66 books, 39 in what we often refer to as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, and 27 in what we refer to as the New Testament or the New Covenant. And those 66 books are written by 42 different authors using three different languages and written over a period of 1,500 years. So it's a unique book. It's different than most books we come to. Most books we come to have one, maybe two authors. They're written over a period of several months, maybe several years at the most. But, but I don't know of any other book that has the unique combination of 42 authors written over a span of 1,500 years in three different languages. And so it's, it's unique in that way, but it's more than, more than just that. The Bible, as you'll see on your handout, is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, necessary, and sufficient word of God. It is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, necessary, and sufficient word of God. What I want to contend today is that this is no ordinary book that this is God's revelation. He is self-revealing him, himself, his nature, his plan, his design for his creation, that he is making himself known. Now, originally, when I, when I wrote out that statement, the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, necessary, and sufficient word of God, my intention was to spend a couple of minutes on each of those different attributes of Scripture. And so I sat down and I started working on inspired and I quickly realized, nope, not gonna get through all of these. <laughs> so I've, I've only taken two. And if, if our intention was to, to extend this series, we could easily you know, design some sermons. You could spend a sermon, you could spend several sermons on each one of these different attributes of the word of God, but we're not gonna do that. There are countless resources out there that do do that. But today I want to focus on what it means that the Bible is inspired and ultimately what it means that the Bible is sufficient. So let's talk about inspired. Inspired, you'll see on the handout, means this. The Bible comes from God and is his message to his creation. Comes from God and is his message 
to his creation. The source of scripture does not originate in man. This word actually originates in God himself. And then he employs man, he uses man to communicate the message that he intends for his creation. Let me give you some scriptures to explain this. First, let's look at what, what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul asserts that all scripture, that's worth stopping and considering what does Paul mean by all scripture? What, what did he have in mind? Did he have in mind the 66 books uh, that, that are in our Bible today? Well, that's highly unlikely considering he's literally writing one of those books as he pens those words. Second Timothy would become one of the 66 books of scripture. <laughs> but when he speaks of scripture, whatever that encompasses, and we know at the very least he had in mind the Old Testament. Did he have in mind some of the New Testament writings that had already gotten traction among the church? That's highly likely. We know that the apostles, we can look to Peter's letters and see that the apostles regarded one another's messages as being divinely inspired and ultimately to be included in what is considered scripture. But this is what he says. He says, it's all inspired by God. A literal translation of that would be, it's breathed out by God. All scripture. And so if we, if I won't take the time to do this today, but if, if we can extend Paul's words to include these 66 books, and I think there's a reasonable case to be made for that, then what, what he's saying is that this is breathed out by God. It comes from him. It does not come from man, but ultimately it comes from God and as a purpose. Its purpose is to be profitable. Its purpose is, is to have an effect, to have a usefulness to it, to be profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Remember we said the Bible is the means by which God grows his people. This is what we see Paul saying here. It's the means by which we are equipped we are equipped to do what God has created us to do. Paul also says in another one of his letters in 1 Thessalonians, this was a letter written to the church in Thessalonica. He says in chapter two of that letter, verse 13, this is why we constantly thank God because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. So Paul, with uh, his ministry partners, travels from city to city, preaching the gospel, sharing with them a message. And this, this message is pretty consistent. They're, they're um, witnessing and testifying to the life and the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's the message and so 
he says, we thank God because when we came to Thessalonica, you received the word of God. He's referring to his message as the word of God. That's why I think it's appropriate to apply 2 Timothy 3, all scripture, not just to the Old Testament, but to the New Testament books as well. When you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God. So this is Paul's conviction that this message of the gospel, which is recorded for us in the New Testament, is on par with the the message of the Old Testament. All of that is the inspired word of God. These are not the words of man. They They use the words of man. God uses human speech to communicate this message, but its origin is in God himself. And he thanks God that the Thessalonians received that message as it truly is the word of God. So that's Paul's take on scripture. What about Jesus? There's this encouraging word in John chapter 14 that Jesus shares with his disciples, with his followers. He says in John 14, verse 25, I've spoken these things to you while I'm with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So here's the precedent. Before Jesus goes away, before he, before he goes to the cross, before his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit's coming and the, one of the, functions of the Holy Spirit is going to be to teach you. He will teach you when he comes. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. You ever wonder, like, how, how did the, the, the disciples record the things that Jesus said and did? Were they follow, following him around, taking scrupulous notes on everything he said? There's, I mean, it's certainly possible that some of this was, were notes that they took during Jesus's earthly ministry, but we know that Jesus promised one of the functions of the Holy Spirit coming would be to remind them. And so it's equally possible that years later, they would sit down with pen and paper and they would write out these gospel messages and that the Holy Spirit would be working to accurately remind them of the things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. That was what Jesus promised. The Holy Spirit would make known to them the truth. That the Holy Spirit would teach them how to understand the Old Testament and how it was pointing to what Jesus would do. So many times we see in the Gospels a, a record of something Jesus did and then the note of the Gospel writers, this was to fulfill, and then a reference back to the Old Testament. Well, who says that was to fulfill? That was the work of the Holy Spirit, teaching them this is how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Again, this is the inspired word of God. It comes from God and is his message to his creation. Let's look at one more text under this. Second Peter chapter one. So we've looked at the apostle Paul. We've looked at Jesus's words. Now let's look at Peter. He was one of Jesus's closest disciples and one of his best friends. Peter became the uh, predominant leader of the early church after Jesus's ascension. 
What does Peter have to say about the scriptures and about this message that they are sharing? He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so up through verse 18, Peter is referring to a specific event and we'll come back to that specific event. But then he says in verse 19, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then thirdly, above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's argument for the divine origin of the message that he and the other apostles were preaching is threefold. First, he says, we know this message is from God because while Jesus was still alive, he took myself and James and John, he took three of his disciples and they went up on a mountain and there's an event that we call the transfiguration of Christ. Peter refers to that event in verses 16 through 18. He says, he, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's referring specifically to seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, because what happens on that mount is in his words, verse 17, he received honor and glory from God the Father. How did he receive honor and glory from God the Father? First of all, his physical appearance was changed. This is recorded in the Gospels. His physical appearance was changed and his glory was made physically manifest. What that means is that if you were to look at Jesus on a normal day, there was nothing that, that seemed to stand out to you. He looked just like every other man. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, his, his physical appearance changed so that his glory became physically evident. Now, what did that look like? We're not really told. We just, we just know that they were convinced of his divine origin at this point. Not only was his physical appearance changed, but there was an audible voice that came from heaven. And this audible voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So they see Jesus' appearance change and he becomes glorious. And then they hear this audible voice saying, this is my, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. But what's interesting about Peter's argument for the divine origin of this message is that he does not rely solely on an experience that he had. That's wisdom. Um, People have all kinds of wild experiences. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that they saw God. Greg might come to me and say, hey, uh, Jocelyn was in the kitchen 
and uh, she was making some homemade bread or some of the cinnamon rolls that she, that she makes, and her face was shining with the glory and the radiance of God. And I was like, man, that was just, that was just, the, <laughs> that's just the cinnamon rolls talking, bro. He's like, no, but I heard an audible voice. That doesn't make it true. So Peter says, we had this experience, and it was utterly convincing. Peter's life was changed. He became convinced in part by that experience. But his argument does not rest on that experience. He says in verse 19, remember it's a threefold argument. The first, the first part of his argument is we saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard the voice from heaven, which was the father saying, this is my son and whom I am well pleased. But then he says, part two, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. In other words, we have, we have the scriptures. We have the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible pointing to Jesus. And when Jesus came, we see that he strongly confirmed the message of the Old Testament. He fulfilled prophecy. And then he says, above all, you know this. This is the third part of his argument. He says, you know that no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he, he sees evidence of that with this New Testament message. In fact, in one place, he would refer to Paul's letters as scripture. Peter, one of Jesus' Jesus's closest followers, the one, that, the one to whom Jesus, one of the guys to whom Jesus promised the Holy Spirit will come, He'll teach you all things. He'll bring to remembrance. Peter is the one who, uh, before Jesus, after Jesus' resurrection, but before his ascension, he commissioned to go and be a leader uh, among his people to feed his sheep. Peter says of Paul's writings, calls them scripture. So there's, there's a lot of, of evidence that points to the divine origin of this message. Peter makes the case. Jesus predicts this would happen. Paul stands on the, the truth that this message does not come from man, but that it comes from God. Peter confirms this. He says, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we understand these, these books, these 66 books, to be the product of men and sometimes women writing as the Holy Spirit carried them along. And so what that means, well, first of all, what that does not mean is that that does not mean that some audible voice dictated for them every word that they should write. It was much more natural than that. It was the Holy Spirit came alongside of the human agent, Paul, Peter, James, Matthew, any of the scripture writers, Moses, the Holy Spirit came alongside of them using their language, using their personality, using their writing style, and the Holy Spirit, as Peter says, carried them along so that what they wrote was what God intent, intended 
for them to write. Not only intended for them to write, but intended for us to hear it. The Bible then comes from God and is his message to his creation. That's what it is. You want to know God's will? Know the Bible. It is his message to us. Now, there is a lot of work to be done in properly reading, interpreting, understanding, and applying that message in our lives. It's not a simple book. It's a, it's a complex book. There are layers. There are, there are tools that need to be employed as you read this, this unique book. The good news is, is it's the same tools that you've been taught your whole life to, to use when you read. What I mean by that is that we are, we are taught when we are reading in different situations or um, from different sources to employ certain tools. If you're, if you're reading a satire article online, you know that sarcasm and humor is, and um, that the, the language that is being used is, is meant to point out something that is obviously embarrassing about a particular argument. And so you read that differently then you might read an encyclopedia or a Wikipedia article. Encyclopedias, it was like before Wikipedia, there were books, there were printed, people, it was weird. Um, But you read differently based on the type of text that you are reading. When you read um, sports articles, you you might read someone says, you know, um, Kenny Pickett is the best quarterback to ever play for the Steelers. Like says something ridiculous, right? You know that's opinion. That's opinion, right? That's that, that that's not necessarily uh, observable fact. That that's somebody is is conveying their opinion through their writing. That's different than reading uh, the temperature and the weather report for today. That's observable fact. And so you, you read and you interpret differently based on the type of, of writing that you're reading. Well, the same is true of Scripture. We need to employ similar tools. When we come to certain parts of the Scripture, they're meant to be poetic, not literal. When we come to certain parts of the Scripture, they're meant to be historical, and some uh, are meant to be prophetic, dealing with with things that have not yet happened, those require different tools. And so we have to learn to read the Bible well. That's one of the things we want to equip you to do throughout the year this year as we go through the 365 Bible reading plan. By the way, if you're not familiar with what that is, we've, we've put out a challenge to our church this year to read the Bible from beginning to end uh, in 365 days. And we've put together some resources. There's, there's a book that we have on the silver tables on the way out that you can grab for free that says 365 Bible reading plan, and it'll tell you uh, the pace you need to go at, which books you should be reading each week, actually each day. And then there's some resources in there that help explain to you the different books of the Bible. And so that's something that I think we have over 90 people that have committed to doing that this year. And so for those of you who are doing that, we wanna equip you as you do that. And so I want you to pay attention to our YouTube channel. There's a playlist set up on there where we're going to keep putting out resources. Uh, and we're, we want to help you develop the tools to read this well. 
Now, the goal in reading through the Bible in a year is not to, not to have a firm grasp of every word, not to stop and study every word, and certainly not to memorize the whole book. The goal in reading through the Bible in a year is familiarity. We, we just want, we want to be, become more familiar with the scriptures. We want to be aware of what God's word says so that we can study it, so that we can know it better, so that we can know him better and apply it to our lives. And so that's the goal in something like reading through the Bible in a year. There'll be many questions that we, we end up with that, that aren't answered. But I'm asking if you're doing that. This is something I didn't mention in the service last week, so I wanted to circle back to it. If you're doing the Bible reading challenge, I want to encourage you here at the beginning of the year to come up with a couple of questions. Because this is the inspired word of God, because it's God's message to his creation, in other words, it's, it's a message to you, I wanna encourage you to come up with a couple of questions that you, would, you are hoping God will answer from his word throughout the year. And they can be, they can be big, life-altering questions. Like really, you know, serious things, consequential things, like should I stay in this marriage? They could be questions like should I should I do something else with my career? They could be questions like how do I, how how should I how can I better raise my children? Or they can be they can be theological questions, like how do I how do I get salvation? How do I know that I'm gonna spend eternity in the right place? They can be questions like that. Whatever they are, I wanna encourage you to write down a couple of questions and be as specific as you want. And I want you to seek for God to speak to you from his word throughout the year and guide you through those things. Now, this is no magic eight ball. You don't, you don't ask a question, shake it up, open it up and go, here's my answer. Should you, should you remain in a marriage relationship isn't something that you're gonna get, uh, oh, yes or no. It's something that you're gonna have to understand God's purpose for your life as revealed throughout scripture. And so it's gonna take time. It's gonna take wisdom. It's gonna take understanding. But if this is God's living and active word, then we should expect he's gonna guide us. And if he doesn't give a specific and direct answer to something, he still gives us principles by which we can discern what is wise in those situations. So I want to encourage you to do that. Let's talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. If the Bible is inspired, that means it comes from God. What else do we need to know about the Scripture? Well, we need to know that his word is sufficient. You'll see this on the handout What we mean by sufficient is that the Bible contains everything we need in order to know God, receive his salvation, and live for him. That's what I mean by sufficient. It contains everything we need in order to know God, receive his salvation, and live for him. It does not mean that the Bible contains every answer to a specific answer to every question we ever have. It does not mean that we don't have really, really seemingly important questions in our own minds that don't have a direct answer in scripture. God has revealed in his word what we need in order to know him, receive his salvation, and live for him. 
not necessarily everything we want. And so we've got to be discerning. We've got to be wise as we read the scriptures and to know when the Bible is clear and when the Bible is silent or when the Bible gives principles that can be used to answer questions that we have. I'm going to look at two verses, two passages. And they're both passages that we've already looked at, not these specific verses. But we've already looked at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. Well, let's read the the verses immediately before that. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says immediately before he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He's speaking to his mentee, his protege, Timothy, and he reminds him, he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, because you know those who taught you And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They are sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient for giving you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is is the Bible that leads us to how we can be born again and have eternal life in Jesus. Peter says in 2 Peter, this was the passage we looked at where Peter makes his threefold argument for the divine origin of Scripture. He says earlier in that same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Everything required for life and godliness. God God has made known, he has revealed through his word, everything required for life and godliness. That means that we will be held accountable to what is in this book but not necessarily accountable for things that are beyond this book. This this is the standard by which we should measure whether or not we are living a a life that is consistent with what God wants for us and a life that reflects the godliness that he has called us to. Everything you need to know to follow Christ to ensure that you have received his salvation, to live the life that he has required for you to live can be found in his word. Again, not everything you want to know. There are plenty of questions that go unanswered in this book, but everything you need to know is in here. So Peter goes on to say, if we skip a few verses, we go down to verse 12 of 2 Peter 1. He says, therefore, I always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have now. Now, who is, who is Peter writing to? I, it's, I think it's generally understood that this letter that Peter has written, 
that we call Second Peter because it's the second letter that we have in the Bible written by him was intended for a general audience. It was, it was intended for the, the church as a whole. And so he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to believers. I always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder, since I, kn- since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. So Peter says, while I live... And I know that I probably won't live much longer because the Lord Jesus has revealed to him that he's running out of time. He's not going to live much longer. He says, so while I'm alive, I I wanna make this clear. I wanna be a constant reminder to you. He says, verse 15, and I'll also make every effort so that you're able to recall these things at any time after my departure. How will they be able to recall Peter's message after he dies? He writes it down. He writes it down. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's writing down his message, the message that God gave him, inspired by the Holy Spirit from God himself, has been written down so that after he is gone, we can continue to consult that message. That is the essence of what the scriptures are. God has seen to it that this message that he revealed by particular human authors has been written down and preserved so that you and I can recall these things, as Peter says, at any time after his departure. What an amazing book. That God himself has made himself known He's revealed his message to his creation. He has ensured that what he wants us to know, everything he requires for us to know for life and godliness, he has written down through human agents, preserved it for us, and made sure that we have access to it today in 2023. In fact, we have greater access to it than any generation before us. No human beings on earth the billions of humans who have lived out through, throughout human history have never had the kind of access to God's message to his people that you and I have. Doesn't it feel like there's an accountability that comes with that? Doesn't it feel like we have a greater responsibility because of the access we have to God's message for his creation? I mean, I was listening. Somebody was reading the Bible to me this morning while I got ready. It's like I'm a king or something. Like, yes, peasants, read the words of God to me while I put my contacts in. This is the kind of access that we have. What kind of accountability comes with that? To stand before God and say, "I I just didn't have time. I didn't have time for your word. This isn't going to work. It's not going to work. You and I must be Bible-centered people. We must know the word of God. That's why in 2023, we're setting out to increase our knowledge, our understanding, our application of his word to our lives. We want to become more familiar. We want to be transformed by his word. 
We want to be people who are in his word. We want to saturate our minds. The pace that it takes to go through the Bible in a year is about three to four chapters a day. That is uh, depending on your personality type and your schedule. For most of us, that's a pretty significant commitment. Um, And what's kind of brutal about that is every time you miss a day, you just get further and further behind. And that's tough. But we want to help you overcome that. There are, I think, some really, really manageable ways to catch up and to even get ahead. One of them I just mentioned is allowing your smartphone to read the Bible to you as you go about your life. But again, the the goal in getting into God's word is to be changed by it, to be shaped by it. And so the challenge I want to give you, and this is the last thing you see on the handout, the challenge I want to give you is how will you make your life more Bible-centered in 2023? It doesn't have to be the 365 Bible reading plan that many of us are doing, though if you want to jump in on that, it's not too late. I encourage you to do that. Of the 90-some people that signed up, I'm guessing, because when you sign up, if you sign up online, when you sign up, it asks you, have you ever read through the Bible beginning to end? Uh, I think probably 75, somewhere around 75 of those 90-some people that signed up have not. And so if you've never read through the Bible, you're in great company. Uh, There's a whole bunch of people sitting around you right now who are taking that challenge this year. But if you don't take that challenge, do something. Have a plan. Maybe your plan's different. Maybe you're going to read through the New Testament five times this year. Maybe that's your goal or whatever it is. But have a plan to be in the word. How will you make your life more Bible-centered in 2023? It doesn't end with, but it has to begin with reading or listening. There's there's no way to be more Bible-centered without hearing or seeing the words on these pages. It has to begin there. There's much more to it than that, just hearing the word of God. As we talked about last week, we don't want to be just hearers. We want to be doers. But it has to begin with being in the Bible. So how will you do that? Let me end with this this quick story. When I was almost 16 years old, I had a, a crisis moment in my life. And that crisis was I was painfully aware of my need for a Savior at about 16 years old. And I, I, I was afraid, I was convinced uh, that I had a desperate need for salvation. And that happened through a series of events in my life, in my life things that were going bad that um, just led me to that place of honestly sheer terror. I knew I wasn't right with God and I knew I had to, to do something different. And so I cried out to God. I, my, my moment of salvation, as far as I can discern, happened in my bedroom in the middle of the night when I just got on my knees and I prayed, God, it was one of those desperate, God, if you'll save me, I'll do anything kind of prayers. And as quick as I prayed that prayer, there, the next thing I wanted to do was I wanted to read the Bible. And I began, I remember my mom had um, given me a a Bible. It was a a teen version of the Bible. And uh, so I was searching frantically through my room trying to find this Bible and I couldn't find it. 
but I found this old children's Bible that I had. And it was one of those Bibles. It's not even the whole Bible. It's just stories of the Bible with uh, pictures in them and stuff. And I started reading that. I, was, I, I just was so convinced. This was before smartphones. I didn't have a computer or anything like that. I just had this old children's Bible. And I started reading it because I was convinced that God was going to reveal himself through that book. Now, where did that come from? I don't know where that desire could have come from other than it was the Holy Spirit had caused me to come alive and immediately brought me into a special relationship with this book. I later found out that my sister had taken my teen study Bible and she was reading it and I was mad at her. I was like, what are you doing with my Bible? Bible. (laughs) I got it back. If you and I expect to encounter God in 2023, if we expect to grow in a closer relationship with him this year, and I hope that's your desire, there are many ways we might hope to experience him, but none is more, more prescribed by him than to be in this book right here, to seek to know him from his word, to allow him to speak his message to us So how will you make your life more Bible-centered in 2023? Don't go to bed tonight without a clear answer to that question. We pray with me? Father, as we seek to to be Bible-centered people, as we seek to, to be those who are shaped not by the messages of this world, not by the messages of our political leaders, not by the messages of our media, or the music industry, or the entertainment industry, as we seek to be shaped by your message, by your words. As your word says, to to renew our minds. Father, I pray that you would guide us into your word, deep, deep into your word. Help us to be people who are consistently exposing ourselves daily to what you have to say through your word. May we be Bible-centered. And may that word transform us, make us the people that you created us to be. And Father, I pray that, that today, before we leave here, each of us individually would make a commitment to a specific plan of action for 2023. God, you might be calling some people in this room to take that challenge of reading through the Bible cover to cover this year. And I pray that they would commit to that, but you might be be encouraging others to do something different. And I pray that you'd just make that clear.